Welcome to part two of our interview with retired Colonel Carlisle Smitty Harris, a Vietnam War veteran fighter pilot and POW who spent nearly eight years in captivity and is credited with teaching his fellow American POWs the TAP code, a covert communication system from World War II that was essential to their survival and helped them prevail over the enemy. If you didn't hear part one, please consider listening to that episode before part two. In this part two, we further explore Colonel Harris's POW experience, eventual release from captivity, and his personal insights on resiliency and leadership. Here are a few clips from part two. I think they believe they could change my mind just as they changed the minds of all the people that they controlled in North Vietnam. And so we were as stoic as you could possibly be. And we marched with our escort officer, if we were able to, out to the airplane. And our goal was to come home with honor, per the Code of Conduct. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. I have one story I'm going to give in my talk that uh, one of the Navy pilots, his name was Nels Tanner, had been tortured badly and what they wanted was a statement from him written statement that two of his squadron mates were anti-war activists and they had encouraged and had gotten the entire squadron to refuse to fly combat they liked that statement they wanted to send it over to the war crimes tribunal in stockholm that Bertram Russell headed up, purely a communist front. But Nels Tanner, just in plain English, wrote out his, the two squatter mates, and there were a couple of things wrong with that, because if his squadron refused to fly combat, how did Nels Tanner get shot down? The other thing was, he named those two squatter mates it was never picked up until it was read to the convention in Stockholm. They were Dick Tracy and Clark Kent. <laughs> Nels Tanner paid dearly for that uh, for almost two years. But he was so proud of having made that deception and shown the North Vietnamese what they were doing with POWs. Wow. Uh, sir, if, if I could ask, um, just to give some context to our listeners, if you recall approximately, just a general approximation of how many interrogations you went through through your eight years in captivity and just the general techniques that the Vietnamese used in that. Well, <clears throat> they used uh, a lot of techniques. Uh, early on, I was interrogated almost every day for the first nearly a month. And during the interrogations, it usually didn't last too long uh, as an interrogation of me because pretty quickly when they weren't getting any information that they wanted, they either went to direct uh, 
gross mistreatment of me, or they practice their English, and actually, I think they believe they could change my mind just as they changed the minds of all the people that they controlled in North Vietnam. So they would teach me, talk to me for hours about the history of Vietnam and the glories of communism and how the people were so happy and it was so wonderful in their, their system and all the bad things that they could find uh, about the United States. And at that early, particular later on, there were quite a few anti-war activists, some of them Hollywood uh, people that were well known, and they played those things to us. Each cell had a little uh, speaker in it, and about once a day they'd play an hour of just propaganda for us, and so we knew what they wanted, but we didn't give it to them. So those were the interrogations early on. They slowed down after that, but they printed out, I think, about 13 rules for us and in English and put them in each cell. And all the things that we must do, the rules, there was no way we could not break them. <laughs> they could find something we had done and would pull us out and punish us, meaning torture, uh, for breaking their rules. Uh, they could resort to torture if we refused to answer or refused to write anything. But torture sessions uh, slowed down considerably from every day to maybe once a month. Uh, in the last two or three years I was there, maybe twice a year really, and they almost had given up on getting anything from us because we stuck together. And everywhere we went, in every camp, we got communication in t inside the entire camp, uh, not just the TAP code, but other ways also. And uh, we had the... SRO and he made decisions. We felt comfortable. We followed him. We had a spree and unity and felt comfortable. And we had pride in all of us. And our goal was to come home with honor per the code of conduct. When you were going through some of those most trying times, especially in the beginning, how did you maintain your resolve? How did, how did you deal with the fear and the uncertainty? Well, we knew it was going to happen, so we were prepared to do what we thought we had to do. And we knew that our buddies uh, had done the same thing, and we were going to do everything we could to maintain our own self-regard as a United States or Navy officer and follow the code of conduct to the best of our ability. And uh, so that was just a given. It was kind of like night and day. There was no other way. It was imbued in us, and we were letting down our friends, our buddy, and our SRO if we did not do that. So we were always in that mode. 
So I know we could speak for, for days on this, sir, but uh, fast forwarding now to, to the, uh, the end of your captivity and moving into repatriation, could you speak a little bit about uh, that process of finally um, being released and coming home? Okay. Uh, my last camp in North Vietnam was, there were about 200 and a few of us, you know, pretty good sized camp up near the Chinese border. So we did not hear the Christmas bombing of 1972 that convinced the North Vietnamese in Paris that they ought to uh, negotiate in serious. And in 12 days of bombing by B-52s and fighters, Navy, Air Force, we hit targets we had never been allowed to get near. We closed the harbor of Haiphong and took out military installations and power plants and all kinds of strategic targets in and around Hanoi. And in 12 days, the North Vietnamese negotiators in North Vietnam went from arguing about whether they should have a rectangular or a circular table to sit around to actually negotiating with Henry Kissinger, who was our U.S. representative there, and uh, we were, they quickly signed uh, release documents for us to be released and a, a ceasefire and uh, really an end to the, the war. Because in 12 days, we convinced them that the use of air force, air power, they couldn't withstand it. There was no way they had to do something just like we had to do something at some point when we were tortured. But the American people by that time had been lied to so much and were so many anti-war activists that the political uh, apparatus in D.C. would not permit us to follow up because the North Vietnamese disregarded and sent troops and everything else down south as we pulled out, and as was bound to happen, uh, they took back all of Vietnam, uh, and we didn't help our forces at all. If you're, if you're willing, could you kind of walk us through um, that, that time frame when you finally came home and were able to finally see your, your family now for the first time after eight years? Well, let me add to my last statement that President Nixon is the one who authorized those targets that actually hurt the North Vietnamese. And uh, as military people, we know, should know that if there is a target that the military uh, should use as an objective, that our political leadership should let the, their armed forces take care of that in as expeditiously as possible because there's going to be less loss of life a quicker and favorable ending as a result. And uh, our leaders at that time didn't, our political leader, leadership did not know that. But President Nixon made the decision, to heck with this, we're going to hurt them enough that we'll end the war, and did so. Uh, so we think a lot about him. When we came home, 
Uh, I was on the first airplane. That was a, a benefit of being shot down early. You got to come home in the first airplane. Uh, we It was a C-141. They bust us out to the airport in Hanoi, and we went in small buses that held about 35 or so guys. And uh, when we got off the bus, we didn't smile going out. We knew where we were going because we had heard the C-141s fly over, and they had posted, as they were required to by their uh, peace agreements, at the end of the that we were to be released. We knew what was happening. We got out of that bus, and we lined up in twos, tallest to shortest, and the senior-ranking person in that bus marched us out to the flight line. That really made the North Vietnamese so angry when we did that, whether in our camp or at this time. And when we walked out there, the senior person would give us at ease, and then we would go be escorted up to a desk. There were a bunch of people there where there was an American colonel in full blue uniform, a couple of our interrogators that we hated, but we went up and saluted, and we never changed expression. We did not want any North Vietnamese to know that we were happy that they had done something for us because it wouldn't make up for all the horror that they, we had been put through. And so we were as stoic as you could possibly be. And we marched with our escort officer, if we were able to, out to the airplane and got on. And even on the airplane, as it was taxiing out, we were still in our stoic mood. It wasn't until we felt the wheels come up that we finally let out a yell and scream, got up, hugged the beautiful nurses they had put on board, went up and talked to the pilots, and uh, it was great. So it's kind of some summary questions. I think one of the things that we face today in, in the Air Force and, and in society at large is resiliency. Um, it's, it's a very, very big topic. Sir, you have been through one of life's most challenging trials um, that you probably ever could face in one's life. Could you offer perhaps some words of wisdom to our listeners on what is resiliency to you? What does it mean to be resilient? Resiliency goes back to having core values, uh, being a person that you like, that you know right from wrong, that you have a relationship with your God. Uh, you have patriotism running out the ears. Uh, you have pride in your unit and in your service. Those are the basics of having great values and following them and knowing what those values are. And then anything that comes up after that, you have something to rest on upon some values that uh, don't change and no matter what situation you're put in or how disagreeable it is or uncomfortable or an assignment you don't like or anything else just go back to those basic 
principles and know that you are an Air Force officer or, or enlisted person or Navy or whatever, and you are supposed to do your job, and your job is to follow the code of conduct and the chain of command and uh, swallow political decisions that are made way above your pay grade or anything. Let them have those uh, political decisions, but when it comes down to anything you have any control over, you take charge of yourself in any situation and know that you have basic values and beliefs that you can always go back to. One of the themes or, or tomes of, of this show is also talking about leadership and innovation. And I'm looking at your book here, Tap Code. And I would say that this was clearly an example of innovation, taking something for World War II and bringing this into the Vietnam era, which was absolutely instrumental in, in getting you and your comrades through such a terrible situation. And all the different leadership lessons that you, you're, you were explaining here just on our, our short talk today. What does leadership um, and or innovation mean to you? Any words of wisdom on, on those topics? In the military services, leadership is expected. It's taught. And when it is exercised in the correct manner, that is uh, in accordance with directives from above in the military chain of command, it gives one great a sense of belonging, of being, that makes pe people comfortable and proud to be a part of whatever that unit is. Uh, innovation, we innovate every day because I'm looking at a young major here who has all kinds of responsibilities that he has met that he was not prepared for when he was commissioned, but whatever he was assigned to do, he did it to the best of his ability and uh, invented ways to do the job even better if he possibly could. And each one of us in the military should always do that. Whatever your job is, change your thinking from what's good for you to what's good for the unit and uh, try to carry that out in the, in the best of your ability. And you're going to have to innovate to do that. And kind of coming full circle through our um, discussion today, we started off with the TAP code. It's been close to 50 years, right, since you were released from um, captivity and just published this book here at the end of 2019, an incredible story and book, and already um, making very good strides as far as sales and publicity. Why TAP code now? <laughs> Way back in the 70s, late 70s, I started a chronicle of my POW experience, and I didn't intend for it to be ever a published document. Uh, I wanted copies for my kids and grandkids to know what happened. But uh, my kids and my wife had been after me for 50 years to put it in a publication, in a book form, where uh, others could 
then just my family could probably gain from whatever I had gone through. My daughter, Robin, had a, her best, one of her best friends in Tupelo was a very gifted writer. Her name is Sarah Berry. And my daughter, Robin, asked Sarah Berry if she would help write the story for me. And Sarah and Robin prayed about it and finally decided to do so. And it turns out she used my documents and others I found for her of some Air University documents that were prepared by returned POWs in the class of 1974. And uh, she saw those, and that was, of course, very current information. We were, were, were released in uh, 1973. And she used a number of sources, and I had a number of books that she, uh, written by other POWs she could look at and gain from. But she gained most of her uh, really good stories and the stories that my wife Louise uh, participated in by coming over and visiting with us, sitting in our den and talking to us. And she was a wonderful typist on a computer. She could almost take down word for word like a stenographer. And she put all that together, and she did the work of putting this book, Tap Code, together as a book hardcover for publication. And uh, I'm very, very pleased with the outcome because Sarah Berry did such a wonderful job, really, of writing it all the way through. And we had some people who endorsed it that I was very proud of, and... Uh, just the forward is one of my best friends in the Air Force, XPOW, did a wonderful job, I think, because <laughs> he likes us. Well, sir, it has been an honor and a privilege to have you in studio today. Um, unbelievable story. If, if there's any final um, thoughts you'd like to leave for our, our listeners just on how to be better leaders, uh, better people, what can they take from your story to help them you know, enhance their life and deal with adversity, get better with dealing with resiliency. Any final thoughts on what they should consider? I'm going to go back to resiliency just a little bit. The men who fought in the jungles of South Vietnam uh, came back to a society that questioned them, uh, spit on them, did not welcome them home. They had been out there putting their lives at risk to preserve our freedoms and get that kind of treatment. Most of them tried to forget all of that and go on with their lives, which was the thing they had to do. With the POWs, uh, we were entirely different because we had met and the enemy and we had won. The ones in South Vietnam didn't have that same feeling. We came home with pride and with honor, and we were welcomed home from the first minute we stepped out of the airplane at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. There were thousands of people out there, 
huge long banners, welcome home and we love you. And from then on, our whole nation was that way regarding the return of ex-POWs. So we were uh, lauded and it was no transitioner for us. Uh, we just went on with our lives as they had been. And uh, when I finally met this young woman again <laughs> after an eight-year absence and met our eight-year-old son whom I had not seen, uh, almost eight, uh, it was as if I walked around the block. They were happy to see me, and I was happy to see them, and we went on with our lives just as we had before. Well, again, thank, thank you, sir. Thank you, um, ma'am, for coming in today. Uh, this has been such an amazing experience for us here, and uh, that'll be it for today's show. So thank you, sir. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here with <clears throat> the Jags and uh, to be able to talk to people who are in service in uniform. I love it. It's, they're some of the greatest people on earth. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing story and even a more remarkable individual. Before I get to my key takeaways, I would like to first publicly thank Colonel Paul Nelson, the Surgeon General Chair to Air University, who graciously made this interview possible. Colonel Nelson also invited Colonel Cynthia Kearley and my wife and I to a dinner event the evening before Colonel Harris's visit to the JAG school. It was a memorable evening where my wife and I had the opportunity to sit across the table from Colonel Harris and his lovely wife, Mrs. Louise Harris, where they had recently celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. Congratulations to them on an incredible milestone. Also in attendance that evening and during the Harris's visit were their close friends and chaperones, retired Lieutenant Colonel Richard Sonic Johnson and his wife, Miss Dee Johnson. The Johnsons were a delight to meet and helped with logistics and numerous questions throughout the Harris's visit. During the evening, while sitting across the table from the Harris's, we talked about life, family, current events, and other stories. It truly felt like being at home with my own grandparents as part of the family. My wife and I were as equally impressed with Mrs. Harris as with Colonel Harris. She exemplifies grace and genuineness with a wit and a sense of humor that kept us laughing through the evening. We learned a bit about her story and what she faced during her husband's captivity, giving birth to a son her husband wouldn't meet for eight years, raising the children through all the uncertainty, and standing up for her rights through numerous incidents. I personally recommend you consider getting Colonel Harris's new book, Tab Code, where Mrs. Harris's side of the story is told from her point of view through numerous chapters that alternate between Colonel Harris's story and his point of view. On the day of the interview at the JAG school, Ms. Harris, Lieutenant Colonel Johnson, and Ms. Johnson all sat in our studio room during Colonel Harris's interview. Mrs. Harris graciously deferred being interviewed out of an honor to her husband to grant him the spotlight to tell his story. With that, I often found Colonel Harris looked to his wife when offering his replies, and she at him, with a clear and deep bond between them. Miss Harris later said she wanted to make sure her husband didn't get, quote, off track. I had a laugh at that, and I'm sure many spouses can relate. Okay, here are my top three takeaways from the interview reading TAP code, and overall experience with the Harrises. Number one, the TAP code equaled communication to the American POWs. Or put alternatively, 
Colonel Harris's innovation to revitalize the forgotten World War II tap code allowed POWs to communicate. It's hard to emphasize in words how vital communication is, especially for those American POWs like Colonel Harris. Maybe we can all relate to it a little better now due to COVID-19 with social distancing, teleworking, and other measures to remain detached from society to reduce the spread of the disease. With that, we generally take communication for granted in our daily lives. We communicate in so many ways today, including through texts, tweets, social media profiles, emails, videos, calls, to meeting people in person. Communication literally surrounds and bombards us from the moment we wake up until we hit the pillow at night. I think it's safe to say we rarely think about communication itself. For a moment, imagine you had no way to communicate with another human. Absolutely zero contact with the outside world, much like solitary confinement. Some may shrug their shoulders and offer a witty reply like, now I can finally get some peace and quiet. But even for those folks, after a day, a week, a month, to even a year, one would surely realize that communication is as vital to the human experience as water, food, clothing, and shelter. Communication is vital to our survival, growth, and understanding, and basically required in every facet of our lives. Living in a world without the ability to communicate would be like living in a black hole with no hope at all. I offer this insight as another way to consider Colonel Harris's achievement to resurrect a forgotten World War II tap code allowing his fellow POWs to communicate, to learn, adapt, instill order, rank, and structure, offer that well-needed joke, or a tap of consolation that they all came to know abbreviated as GBU, or God bless you, after an interrogation or torture session. This tap code, this vital link to communication, provided them the ability to survive, at times thrive, and ultimately prevail over the enemy as they marched, in fashion, out of North Vietnam to their freedom. In a world with so much communication and so many distractions, Consider taking a few minutes to reflect on your level of communication with others. Can you make it better, more genuine, and less distracted? Number two, Colonel Harris exemplifies the humility of a leader. Humility can be defined as a modest view of one's own importance. It's not usually the first characteristic that likely comes to mind in leadership, but humility is a virtue that leaders should strive to achieve. For well over a thousand years, humility has been referred to as one of the seven great moral virtues, along with temperance, charity, diligence, patience, chastity, and kindness. These seven virtues have been defined by philosophers, theologians, and others as a way to live one's life. Aristotle defines such virtues as a disposition to behave in the right manner and as a mean between the extremes of deficiency and excess. In other words, a virtue, such as humility, sits at the equilibrium point between two vices. For example, humility is viewed as the equilibrium point between the excess of pride on one extreme and deficiency of self-deprecation on the other. Humility helps one to remain level-headed in times of excess and times of scarcity. 
Humility helps the leader keep a reasonable perspective and healthy form of faith and belief in one's own abilities and strengths without an overbearing pride or hubris or a self-deprecating attitude. Colonel Harris exemplified humility through his life, and it was also apparent in his trip to the Jack School. He continually recognized all those around him, seemed to downplay his importance in teaching others the tap code, and didn't take himself too seriously. A few weeks after the interview, our commandant, deputy commandant, and I received handwritten thank you letters from Colonel Harris and his wife offering their gratitude and thankfulness for the experience to visit the JAG school. Colonel Harris, a Vietnam POW hero, was thanking us for our service. If that doesn't instill a sense of humility in oneself, I'm not sure what will. And number three, your most precious gift is time. Colonel Harris spoke with an exuberance about his family and life when we broke bread and had dinner together. His eyes beamed with joyful pride when he talked about his kids and grandkids, much like my own grandfather, a former World War II POW. At the end of the dinner, I asked what Colonel Harris planned to do after his book tour. He looked at me, laughed, and said, Well, I'm sure not going to waste any time. I think we can all learn from that. One final anecdote. After our podcast interview with Colonel Harris, he gave a speech at the JAG school to a standing room only audience in our auditorium. He provided a riveting account of his experience, mindset, and faith in his creed, fellow POWs, and the code of military conduct. He also answered numerous questions after his prepared remarks. One question concerned resiliency, a hot topic in our current military. He emphasized a belief in oneself, one's own abilities, and taking care of yourself and loved ones. Ultimately, he said, believing and living by your core values are what define resiliency. He said his core values are what got him through eight years of captivity as a POW. With that, consider reflecting on your own core values. What are the values that form your foundation? What are the values that make you, you? What are the values that you hope to instill in others? Last, and in tribute to all POWs and MIAs, I'm going to air one minute of silence and tap out in tap code the acronym of GBU, or God Bless You, in the middle of the silence. This abbreviation of GBU was used thousands of times during the Vietnam War by the American POWs as a way to communicate their loyalty and faith in one another, the code of conduct, and their American values. If interested, you can find the TAP Code Matrix on page 75 of Colonel Harris's book, TAP Code, which uses two sets of taps per letter, with the column first, then the row. The one minute of silence starts now.
That concludes this episode. Thank you for listening to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. If you like this interview, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the reviews. Last, if you have any topics that you think would be suitable for this podcast, please contact the Professional Outreach Division as we try to bring you the best content on leadership and innovation. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes, along with others, at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.